All right. Good morning, everyone. How you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, thanks for asking. Um, I am one of the pastors uh, here at Redeemer, uh, one that you wouldn't see up here more, uh, very often. But uh, uh, I'm also, with my wife Christina, we serve as the leaders of the orphan care ministry here at the church. And if you didn't know, you have walked into church today on Orphan Sunday, a Sunday celebrated across the world as the time the church stands up for the needs of orphans um, and the vulnerable. Uh, we're, we're gonna have a prayer later, so if that makes you nervous, that's when you can make your exit and get out of here. Um, but uh, but uh, I, I think uh, we'll be all right, I promise. This, will, this message will come with some caveats. Um, for those of you that were really looking forward to getting along in the Gospel of Luke, because uh, we're getting up to the Christmas narrative and we're getting to, you know, Christ being born among us. I have good news. Uh, I've snuck in the birth of Christ through another scripture this morning, the one that I picked for, uh, for the actual message on adoption. So through Galatians, because in the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. So you, aren't, you don't have to lose the nativity message this morning, even though we're going into adoption. That was by divine providence. Um, what I'd like to do today... Um, I want us to look, uh, so, so you know, Galatians is probably Paul's most frustrated letter. Uh, it's his only letter where he doesn't give a really nice affirmation at the beginning, a really nice greeting. He gets right to work telling the church where they've gone wrong. And why that's good for us is because where the church wildly goes wrong is when they've forgotten the gospel and forgotten their redemption as sons. And so that means when Paul has to articulate it to them, he has to articulate it very clearly to get them back home. So Paul's clearness on this front is our benefit. We're gonna look at what Paul says about, um, it's the distillation of our time before Christ, before he came into our lives, of how he came into the world and redeemed us, and then what our response is to being saved by him. More specifically, it recounts our adoption into the household of God and what got us there. So we have a short amount of time today, and those are our goals. We want to talk, who were we before Christ? What has he done to redeem us? What are we now called to do? And I hope to get at the heart of what motivates us as a church uh, for, to have an outbound love for the world that is around us and is always perishing spiritually and physically. Um, we're gonna start by actually looking at our, our faith's posture towards adoption historically. Um, this is one of those kind of interesting things. Uh, orphan care, orphan ministries are one of those still places in the world where to obey God's commands actually still gets you street cred with our non-believing brothers and sisters um, because it's still a ministry that people look at and will give you a nice golf clap for participating in. They'll say, oh goodness, you must be among the best of the world to adopt and to foster. I had a friend, a coworker, who when he had just learned that I was coming up here at church one night to lead our orphan care uh, support group, he just looked at me and said, Dale, you're a saint. And I, I said, well, uh, I mean, that's true, but not in the way that you know. In the, in the household of God, we're all saints, and leastways, we're not, we don't gain sainthood by hosting uh, support groups at churches. Um, but even still, that goes. He, he looks at something like this and he says, it's still good. You don't necessarily get praise from the world for proclaiming the exclusivity of Christ to die for your sins. 
Um, and you actually get sideways glances from the world if you start talking about sexual ethics for one second. So this one is kind of a safe place where we live, but I want to, we want to look at it and talk about why is that? Because it wasn't always the case. It's a happy circumstance that orphan care right now still falls under kind of the trappings of God's um, overall love for the world, that, uh, that this, this is still a gospel witness for the world. It wasn't always so. Um, you know, just because Aunt Sally makes sweet potato casserole for Thanksgiving every year. She didn't always make it. At one point, she wasn't making it. And we have to figure out when she started and why. And in the Greco-Roman society, which is where our faith comes from, what Christianity was born out of, it was not an ideal. In fact, um, the care for children and the care for, for vulnerable children was really, really very low on their um, overall schema of what is important. Um, Suetonius, he was a biographer of Roman Caesars. Uh, he references at one point, uh, as a matter of ritual, uh, infants were abandoned in a grief ceremony because of the assassination of Emperor Caligula, which is to say they saw that their emperor was assassinated. In order to show their grief, they left their children on the steps of the temple and left them. Um, it was a society where less clinical versions of infanticide were available, so exposure through abandonment uh, served as one of the most efficient means of dealing with undesired children. It's out of that culture that Christianity and the early church rose up and raised a prophetic voice, and they made a very clear stance against that practice. Uh, a couple quotations, these are from Alvin J. Schmidt. He wrote a book called How Christianity Changed the World. He says, as with infanticide, Christians opposed and condemned the culturally embedded custom of child abandonment. Clement of Alexandria, a highly influential church leader in Egypt in the latter part of the second century, condemned the Romans for saving and protecting young birds and other creatures while lacking moral compunctions about abandoning their own children. Lactantius, the church father who tutored one of the sons of Constantine the Great, opposed child abandonment, saying, it is as wicked to expose as to kill. Which we hear in our words now, and we kind of say, duh. I mean, do we understand? Of course, that's, that's wicked. And that's great to say. It's great for Christians to say those things. But and it, it, a lot of it still feels very kind of on brand with, with the church's overall posture towards abortion today caring for smaller things, but neglecting the care for our own children in society. But the glory was that the church actually stepped up. The church rose up in a, in a way, and Schmidt continues. He says, Christians, however, did more than just condemn child abandonment. They frequently took such human castaways into their homes and adopted them. Callistus of Rome gave refuge to abandoned children by placing them in Christian homes. Afra of Augsburg, she's one of my favorites, was a prostitute in her pagan life, but after her conversion to Christianity, she, quote, developed a ministry to abandoned children of prisoners, thieves, smugglers, pirates, runaway slaves, and brigands. Don't let anyone tell you church ministry has to be boring. I don't know why Redeemer hasn't started a brigand ministry yet. We need to, we need to start. I told Chris in the first service he needs to work on the pirates. Um, after that, we can start getting to some of these more unreached people groups. A couple more lessons in history before we keep going. Uh, the following, this comes from the Shepherd of Hermas, which for those of you that, that might have heard of it, Shepherd of Hermas was a widely held document in early church history. It was actually in 
contest to be in the canon of scripture before it, was, before it was ruled out, but even still, it held a lot of sway in the early church. It was highly respected. Shepherd of Hermas writes in Similitude 5, having fulfilled what is written, in the day on which you fast, you will taste nothing but bread and water. And having reckoned up the price of the dishes of that day in which you intended, that you had intended to have eaten, you will give it to a widow or an orphan or to some person in want. And thus, you will exhibit humility of mind. He who has received the benefit of your humility, your humility may fill his own soul and pray for you to the Lord. About 70 years later, um, another church, early church document, about the year 230, we think, uh, is called the Didascalia Apostolorum. And if you say it with confidence, no one will question you. Uh, in regard to orphaned girls, he, the Christian, should assume the role of a father and give her in marriage to a Christian. If the orphan, boy, if the orphan is a boy, he is to ensure that he learns a useful trade and is able to earn a living so that he is no longer dependent upon the church's benevolence. If any one of the children of Christians be an orphan, whether boy or girl, it is well that if there is one of the brethren who has no children, he should adopt the child in the place of children. The quote actually goes on to talk about how if you have children already in your household, you should adopt children for the sake of giving them in marriage to your own children later in life, which is to say that not all of the extra biblical commands have aged the same way. Uh, even still, you can sense there's an imminent practicality to these commands. There's not a weird spiritual, physical divide. They're literally saying, when you fast, figure out how much your meals would have cost that day and give that to somebody in need. When there are children uh, who don't have parents, figure out a way to equip them with parents. That's what, that's what the command was. Martyrs in the early church were encouraged regularly uh, that their children would be taken care of by believers in the event of their deaths. Can you imagine if we transplant ourselves back to early 100, 200 AD, the, the feeling, the sense of comfort that might come if you knew the church body was all in, in that should you pass away, your children would be taken care of. It was a matter of fact. So the church has been caring for the vulnerable since its inception. Why? Uh, what drove them specifically to set about the work, this work that was incredibly countercultural? Remember, it wasn't, it wasn't normal at the time and it wasn't necessarily praised at the time. Another way to phrase that question, what specific role and responsi responsibility do we, the church now, God's elect, have in this same fight? We're gonna use Galatians 4 as a bit of a jumping off point. And we're gonna look at three points, that we were slaves, that we were redeemed, and that we are called. And before we get into it, we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for bringing us here this morning, and we trust in your goodwill that you have brought us here um, for the sake of hearing from you, of calling us to you, to understand you in a way that uh, gives you greater glory and helps us to praise you more truly. So in the words I speak today, I pray that you would be present and um, that you would guard my mouth to say only what is true for believers and that for um, the hearts in this room, that they would be listening for you, for the impact that you would have of them. And we ask all this in Christ's name, amen. 
I uh, want to start real quickly, too, before we get into Galatians. Two things. The goal of this today is not to make every family in here feel like you must foster or adopt a child uh, by the end of the week, or that you necessarily would be the start of that process. It's not true. Wouldn't it be the best case for most of the children? Wouldn't it be the best case for most of the families? But the goal is, and this is a scarier goal, to listen for the Lord's calling in your heart for what you, he would have you do, for the way that he would have you serve. So, in Galatians 4, 1 through 3, we were slaves. Now I say that as long as the heir is a child, he differs in no way from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. Instead, he is under guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were in slavery under the elements of the world. To understand that we were slaves to sin and that we have been adopted into the household of God is often at the heart of any Christian adoption ministry or just even when you hear a message on adoption, that is, that is where it comes out of. You were adopted. And what were we adopted from? Children of wrath, slaves to sin. Some examples from scripture, Ephesians 2, 3 says, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts and were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. Romans 6, 20 through 23 says, but now since you have been set free from sin, so we were by nature children of wrath. We have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God. You have your fruit, which results in sanctification. The outcome is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So two truths. We were children of wrath. We were slaves to sin. And our natural state, our native household, is that we were held in bondage to sinfulness. Our hearts were inclined towards evil, and we did not seek the glory of the Lord, but rather our own strivings were for our own fullness and our own glory. No one is good, no, not one. And there's a besetting sin that manifests itself in the lives of believers uh, who have been walking with the Lord for some length of time. Our problem is often that we forget, you and I, how much the Lord has saved us from. Uh, we forget too easily what God has delivered us from, and, and the, the sin that we were under no longer feels pressing. We, were, we, we understand that at one point, our salvation was not secure, and our hope, we didn't know what it was. We just knew that we were held in sin. We knew that there was something wrong. And remembering our helpless estate from before our eyes have been opened to the goodness of the Lord, um, and remembering the gospel of Christ is a command Paul continues from Ephesians. This is Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
This is why in a couple weeks we're gonna have a baptism service, right? This is why believers get a little misty-eyed every time we have a baptism service. It's why when we see, again, the picture of our salvation put out on display in front of us, it calls into our hearts remembrance of what God has brought us back from. And we have to do that as believers all the time, over and over and over, remind each other of the joy of our salvation, remind each other what we were saved from. It is not trivial. We were at one point without hope in the world. We are now at this point with all hope in the world. We have been saved from our sins by the gospel of Christ. We must remember that and we must keep going back to that. We do well to remember but I'm gonna say something a little bit funny, and I'll, get, I'll, I'll, I'll elaborate a little bit later, but there's a way in which um, that remains true, and that adoption is a chief motivator for us to look into the world and look at the needy and say, we must go to them and bring them in. But there are, there are a few caveats to that, because there are ways that our adoption into the, into the Lord is not the same as us reaching out into the literal adoption of people into our, into our lives of orphans into our lives, of widows into our lives. They're not quite the same. We'll get there. Um, and, uh, and I think the differences will, I, I hope will make some sense. Next though, we're gonna get to we were redeemed. Galatians 4, four through five. Again, here's your secret Christmas verse. When the time came to completion, the ESV says when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. What's it mean to be under the law? Uh, you might ask that question. It's not necessarily obvious. It wasn't stamped on my birth certificate. Um, it wasn't stamped on your birth certificates. What does it mean to be under the law? Particularly, and I'm gonna hazard a guess here because I don't know, I don't have a census. Most people in this church probably aren't Jewish. Um, again, guess, I don't know. You could tell me I'm wrong. But when we think about them, Jews, the Jewish people of the New Testament, they knew exactly what, what that meant. They had lived their lives following the Torah, following the Pentateuch. They knew what the law of God required. They knew what a sacrifice the law of God required. We, though, what are we under? We're under something different. We're not off the hook. Um, why did, you know, we were, we were under some kind of law because we were separated from the commonwealth of Israel. I wanna look at two questions real quick. What did we need redeeming from? And why did Christ need to be born under that law? First, here's our own culpability in sin, even if we didn't know it. This is from Romans 1, 20 and 21. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. What's that mean? I think it means that we know in our hearts that there is something in all of us that doesn't measure up. We might not know what we don't measure up to, uh, but we know that it's something. Um, if you show me the human that says, I think I am completely fulfilled, I am as good as I need to be, we can all look around and say, that's a sociopath. We need to stay away from that person. <laughs> um, but we know, when I, when I read something, 
like the ancient Greco-Roman world uh, made it a common practice to abandon their children and leave them, something, particularly maybe in a mother's heart, perks up and, and feels something. By what standard were they failing? Because it was totally within their, their culture to do that. They thought it was fine. They thought it was just part of the practice. They had extra cultural reasons for believing that that was a normal thing to do. By what standard are their hearts darkened, but not ours? Which is to say that even when the law is not present, even when you're not looking at the Ten Commandments and keeping a list, in some way or another, we're failing it. The second question I asked was, why did Christ need to be born under the law to redeem us? And this is a wonderful verse that sums it up. This comes from Romans 8. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We're told elsewhere that the law isn't evil, but it magnified in us what was evil. It doesn't take a memorized knowledge of scripture to know that whatever morality standard we set for ourselves, we will in time fail, uh, given we don't just stay in a room the rest of our lives. A rock excels at being a rock. The birds of the air do exactly what the Lord appoints them to do. What is it that we humans get wrong when we sin often and in degrees of severity? Because of that missing piece, there's a sacrifice needed for the transgression. And it, was, it has always been required. And the, in Christ, the sacrifice was made. He lived according to the law so that the law would be fully obeyed and then his sacrifice would be entirely sufficient to cover the sins of weary sinners such as us. In the same way, how did, so how did the law get between us and the Lord? A little bit of an example, I think. The same way the world, you can't finalize an adoption in court here, a transfer, or you can't finalize an adoption without a transfer of ownership, a legal transfer of ownership in court. Uh, there's a time, legally, in a binding way, we were outside the promises of God. We were outside the covenant, and God had to make a way to fulfill the law. The law couldn't be broken, but it could be obeyed perfectly in Christ and then given to us so that in Christ's sacrifice, he is actually able to stamp upon us that we can be adopted into the household of the Lord. Um, we were not, uh, not only that, but it took a supernatural act of the Lord to break us free from the stupor that's in all of us of, you know, that tells us that we should value what the world tells us to value and that the greatest fulfillment is the fulfillment of ourselves because we weren't just obstinate in our sins. Our spiritual reality was that we were dead in our sins. Uh, there's a, a common issue with a lot of adoptive and foster children called reactive attachment disorder. Uh, which unfor the unfortunate acronym for is RAD, which they should probably fix because it sounds like it's a cooler thing than it really is. What it really means is that you can't form the right attachments with your actual caregivers because you try to form these unhealthy attachments to just any adult you see in your life. Something in your brain is broken about how you form attachment. Um, that to say, uh, you become overly dependent on every adult in the room. But then when you go home to the actual people that are caring for you, you spurn them. You spurn their attention. You spurn their love. Um, and the ones that actually care for you are the most hurt. 
our spiritual state before the, as bad as that is, our spiritual state before the Lord was much worse. Uh, We weren't just maladjusted to a good and loving father. We were dead. If you go with an orphanage example, we weren't just the hardest kid in the orphanage to adopt into a home. We were the kid in the orphanage that died two weeks prior. God still showed up and said, that's the one I want. I'll take that one. And the next thing you know, we're breathing again. And the children of the Lord that have received adoption as sons, and we still have reactive attachment disorder and every other malady under the sun, but the Lord is patient with us. And God looked on our literal helpless estate and compelled our hearts to beat with a different blood than they had in them before. And then he made a legal declaration that Christ, born of woman under the law, would take our whole sinful estate and then imbue in us the righteousness of his life, that he lived under the law, so that what? So that we might receive adoption as sons and be called into the care of the Father. Last bit here, Galatians 4, 6 through 7. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. So, somehow, miraculously, through the interceding work of the Lord, we've made it into the household of God. To understand, and then God, seeing fit that we're in the household now, says there are some rules by which that you should probably start understanding. This is how we operate. This is how the household of God works. I think there's, a good, there's another passage of scripture that helps us understand this. This comes from uh, John chapter 14, the gospel of John. And I'll read, the first, I'll read a little bit before and then you'll see some words on the screen. Um, Jesus, just so you know to set this up, is about to leave, or at least he's telling his disciples of his uh, inherent leaving. Has anybody ever worked for a, I don't know, a very good boss or a very good leader and that, such that you knew that their absence to an organization was going to greatly either make your life much worse or the organization was going to falter. Imagine that times a billion when Christ, the person whom you've been following, the person that you gave up everything to follow, tells you, soon I will be leaving. What does that mean for his disciples who were nobodies? You know, what does that mean for them? Their great leader is going. He tells them, This, if you love me, you will keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and he will be be with you. Then this great line, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you in a little while The world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. And on that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. He, brought our, he bought our salvation. 
paid a king's ransom for us, and he's no longer present in this church bodily in the way that he was present for the disciples, right? But like on a quick poll, if you could vote, you could have Christ here right now, Jesus in the flesh, or you could have our church here right now empowered by the Spirit. Does most everybody wanna go with Jesus in the flesh? Do we, do we, is that kind of what we want? Just to bring somebody here to tell us what's right and what's wrong that we can follow? But if that's the case, why did Jesus say, it's better for me to leave and send the Holy Spirit to you? It's better that I go and that the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the advocate comes to you and that instead of Christ bodily in the flesh, he will make us the church, his body in the world. He says, this is the better way. This is the better way both for the salvation of the world. It's also the better way to, uh, to engage all of the weary sinners in the world as they exist. We have been bought by Christ so that the spirit could come into us and that in Christ's physical absence, the world is not saying, where is, the, where is Christ? They're saying, where is the church, the body of Christ? What are they going to do? He says, the spirit of truth, the counselor is coming to be with us forever. And when the spirit comes, he confirms two things. He confirms our adoption into the household of God and gives us a spirit that can speak more tenderly to the creator of the universe than I speak to my own father. I love my dad. I've never called him daddy in my life. But, but the spirit of God comes into us and says, you can approach God as tenderly as a daddy. You can call to him, Abba, Father. The throne of grace is open to you. That's one thing. Um, but it also comes into us because he loves us by the power of the spirit, we can now be the body of Christ to the world. And that's why I said earlier, the doctrine of adoption, and I want to be, I, this is kind of tricky. I know this is kind of like spiritual ease here. Um, the doctrine of adoption isn't necessarily the, always the most fitting um, theology for what we're doing in the world when we approach the vulnerable, when we approach orphans, widows, children, um, and I want to say why, because our calling into the world, when God, I'll say when God adopts us, his adoption of us is sure. The will of the Lord in our lives when he calls somebody cannot be thwarted. That's why C.S. Lewis called himself the most reluctant convert in England whenever he came to the Lord, because he, he was, the truth was revealed to him and he had no other choice. God's will, God's ability to affect his will on us is perfect. Um, when we go into the world, when we take a foster child into our house or we care for somebody vulnerable, uh, is our will perfect? No. And also the outcome of that, we may not know. Whereas the result of our salvation is secure, the result of loving the vulnerable that God gives us, we don't know what that looks like. What we know instead is that we're called to obedience uh, when we reach out into the world and take orphans into our home or give of our money and our resources, we're upsetting the comfort of our lives. Uh, we are not guaranteed the outcome of salvation for the souls that we minister to. Rather, we're stepping out in spirit-powered obedience to be Christ in a world that doesn't know him.
And the results of that are messy and frustrating and faith-shaking. And we do it not because of the results, but because the glory of God is magnified in our striving and suffering for the kingdom and because the Lord has already blessed us so abundantly. When the church pursues the needy to their own physical detriment, that becomes God's witness in the world of a tender heart that is outwardly loving. And why would I draw this contrast? Again, I'm not trying to be a church curmudgeon. Um, When the Lord works his arm for salvation, we can be sure that he will reach his desired end. And the same is true when we are caring for vulnerable, but we don't necessarily know that the the Lord's desired end for the people that we care for is that we will adopt them into our home or that we will see their salvation to its end. We can't know that. What we're calling, what our calling is, is what John 14 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and the spirit will be in you and you will go into the world and love the world. Uh, And I say this for a real practical reason. We've got families in this church lots of them that have stepped into this world, foster care world, adoption world, and they have, uh, the only thing that has come about it on a, from a physical end, from a practical end, is difficulty. And their families, their family and life and work structure gets upset. And their children don't show them the kind of love that you would hope a child would show you for bringing them into your home. Surely, In my great benevolence, I brought you into my home. Why don't you love me? Which, if our own biological children don't, why would we think that somebody else would? Um, All that to say, when those results get messy and our hope is that we will see the final result of God's salvation in in those lives, then we might be disappointed. Goodness, we might be in a lot of trouble. Because if you look at some of the families in this church that that have walked this road, they don't know what the end of it looks like. If they're banking their hope on, an, on a known ending, they don't know. They know their salvation. They know what the Lord has done for them. What is the Lord gonna do for this child they brought into their home? They don't know. What they're called to is obedience. What they're called to is love. What they're called to is suffering. And I say that, like, I, I even think... Um, we had our brother Scotty in the, in the first service. I see Lauren over here. They've been, for those of you that don't know, some of you have been close to it. They've, they've been kind of like the, um, one of the consistent prayer, prayer requests, prayer needs of the orphan care group for since January 12th, 2018. I had to double check with Scotty when that started. So we're coming up on four years. They had a, they've had a child in their home for almost four years We thought this last Thursday might have been the final court appointment that says, no, the child can now be yours, or at least we can start lining up the process to make the child yours. And guess what? Delayed again. Delay and delay and delay and difficulty and difficulty and difficulty has been been what they have sown from this process. If ease or comfort was what they were hoping for, they are surely not getting it. But tell me they haven't been a blessing to our church to watch their faithfulness to their calling of the Lord. Anybody that's been part of that story can look at it from the outside in and feel their own faith incensed 
by the fact that this, a couple like this has reached out in faith and is willing to walk a harder road for the sake of a child that they still don't know the ultimate, if he's gonna be their responsibility ultimately. We're going to keep praying. That's our hope. That's still our hope. But let's say, and we're not, not wishing this, but this, this has happened. If, the, if that child gets separated, has the Lord failed? Real question. Was the arm of the Lord not strong enough to save that child? I see people shaking their heads because that is absolutely true. The will of the Lord in that child's life, we may not know what it is, but we must trust that God is working. And if only for a child to be taken from a home where they would experience no love and to be brought into a home where they would experience love and abundance and also hear the gospel of the Lord for four years, that is a success. The obedience is a success and the love of the Lord in that child's life is a success. That's what we're aiming for. And even if we don't know the end, we trust the end to God's hand because God is good and loving and kind. And even when he, he asks us to step into things that we can't control, he remains good and loving and kind, even in the midst of our confusion and even in the midst of difficulty. And again, the church and the body of Christ, we see more clearly for the goodness that it is because of when people step out in that kind of faith. We look at it and we say, there's Jesus. We see it. When we don't gain anything, there's Jesus. So what does that mean for everybody? Because again, I said, I don't want everybody in this church to try to adopt or foster a child by the end of the week. Uh, I think we'd get in trouble. Um, we would have nobody to bring them meals and Jen Harkless would have a heck of a time scheduling it. Uh, what does that mean for us? That means that we're trying to make, uh, as far as the orphan care ministry is concerned, we're trying to make as many easy on-ramps for, for, uh, for success. One of those things is next year, February 28th, 2022, we're, um, we're starting a Parents' Night Out program for foster and adoptive parents in the area, not just in this church, but brought, more broadly speaking, for other churches to come to, for non-believers to come to, because most, the average lifespan of a foster family is 18 months, and the 18 months is not wholly because of the difficulty of the children, and it's not because of the difficulty of the system, it's because those families say they had no support. What a terrible thing to have no support when there is support in abundance. Um, and I'm not blaming this church. This church has been great. I'm just saying there's a lot of support out there. Um, so what, what are those opportunities for Parents Night Out? There is, I think we came up with 20 of them and there's a flyer in the foyer at the outreach table um, that lists bring food, be a buddy to some of these kids as they come. Uh, uh, shop or donate um, for gifts or for other things that we need. Again, there's a list of 20. Um, we've got a... Uh, also out there, uh, an organization we partner with called Fostering Families. Um, they put together a packet specifically for our church. They gave, we gave them the five most representative zip codes of Redeemer. Although when you look at like a, a church in, the, in a Houston suburb, uh, some of us live like an hour and a half away from, from each other because it's just a, it's a wide net. But we got pretty close. Uh, of the five zip codes, they've come up with specific stats for children in the system for our church. And when you look at this wide world and you say, goodness, where's the need? How can we help? Guess what? We know that there's about 130 kids in the system within our five zip codes, within this church's five zip codes. It says 130 
seem like an impossible number for the churches of the Northwest Houston area to rise up and take care of. I don't think it does. I think we need like one family from every 10 churches and then we've got enough. There's a church on every corner. Um, I think that that's, that when we, and when you look at that, when you understand what the needs are, when you understand that, oh, well, this area has a lot to give, this area has a lot that they need, then you understand where we can fit in the role. We're partnering with another group called um, Entrusted Houston. Entrusted Houston is, uh, uh, they're doing a drive for CPS workers, uh, where CPS workers can come and get presents that they will then give to the children that, uh, that come under their care. Um, just earlier this last week, my wife Christina was actually in a, in a line where she and our oldest Casper were giving out candy to CPS workers, many of whom have new children in their back seat that they don't know where they're going to yet. That's the life of a CPS worker. Picked up a child, I hope by the end of the day I figure out where they're going. Can you imagine? They need a lot of support. So in Trusted Houston, we're trying to raise, um, you know, we've got a shopping list in the foyer and uh, through December 8th, we're trying to raise enough money to give them something, to bless them with something. I would also say this is easier. Talk with the adoptive families in our churches. Talk with the Jinx or the Rectors or the Daniels or the Youngs. I'm gonna miss some, we've got more than that, but goodness, talk with them. Learn about their normalcy, sorry guys, but learn about how normal they are. They're not, they're not some kind of superhero believers. They, were just, they just stepped out in faith, they're trying to love the Lord. Um, pray for the Lord's will in your own life. Now that, I've, now that I've done these things, how can I help? What can I do? How can I be the body of Christ to the world? Uh, easy one, attend an orphan care meeting. Starting next year, we're gonna start doing these on Wednesday nights when every other meeting takes place so that uh, if you just happen to be here and you wander into the wrong room, we'll just ask you to start praying with us. Um, all of these things, we wanna give a lot of on-ramps to serve, to love, to care. And again, we're only loving. Let me make this real clear. The, uh, our, we, we do this in all joy because of what Christ has done for us because we remember the joy of our salvation and we go to the world and we say, let's be the body of Christ to the world no matter what comes. Last story. Um, this comes from a book called Journey to the Fatherless by Lawrence E. Bergeron. Uh, there's a true story of an American Christian in Korea, uh, traveling in Korea with a missionary. One day they saw a boy pulling a crude plow in a field while an old man held the handles. The American took a snapshot of the scene for the family back home and said to the missionary, that's a great picture. I suppose they are very poor. Yes, was the quiet reply. When the church was being built, they were eager to give something to it, but they had no money, so they sold their only ox and gave the money to the church. Now they have to pull the plow themselves. The American thought for a moment and responded, that must have been a real sacrifice. There was a long pause. The missionary said, they did not call it that. They thought it was fortunate that they had an ox to sell. Let's pray, and then we'll go into a time of communion. If you don't have a communion cup, they're available at the, near the back door. Now would be a good time. You could go grab one before we actually get to it. Um, but let's pray. Let's go to the Lord. Well, Father, and we thank you that we can call you Father. You have done such a great work in us. And hopefully, may you give us the eyes to see and say as Christ did, that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And what might we do in the, as the body of the church to reach out 
into the harvest. Not only to open up our homes, um, but to preach and minister the gospel to the families that need it most. That only see weariness and that only see brokenness and they don't even have a, a reference point for what stability looks like because they have been unstable from the beginning. May, they, may you grow them into many testimonies of your grace and your mercy. And in such a way, we ask even still that you would call them the way you've called us to your salvation, to your goodness. But that if you don't, that we will remember your call to us to be the body of Christ to the world, to love them, to seek after them, uh, to give of ourselves for them, and to honor you. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.